1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in French Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest in this episode is Rachel Gillette, the author of At Home in Our Sounds, Music, Race, and Cultural Politics in Interwar France. And the book was published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Hi there, Rachel. Hi. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me.
2: Oh, it's a delight. Thank you for the invitation.
1: Rachel, I, I started doing this in the heart of the pandemic, peak pandemic, um, but I'm kind of reluctant to let go of the practice. Just asking people, you know, where they've been the past couple of years and how, how they've been doing. So anything you want to tell us about that?
2: Oh, thank you so much. And it does make me think of something that I've been considering lately, which is the ethics of care, both in the classroom and in in our personal and scholarly work. Um, Because I felt during the pandemic that We were all trying so hard all the time and I certainly was close to losing it a lot of the time Um, because I was dealing with children at home with homeschooling in a language that was not my own. Uh, And I have family in England, in America and in New Zealand, but I myself live in the Netherlands. So it was a, a really interesting time where everything seemed to just close in And yet also paradoxically open up. uh, And I think I'm still recovering from the pressure of trying to do everything and be everywhere, but always online.
1: Yeah, no, it's been a super challenging time. And it's been really, I mean, not fun, but interesting to hear from people about the different contexts that they've been in. The other question I ask all the time is, why France? How did you come to be uh, a scholar of France and the Francophone world?
2: Oh, I love that question. And um, (laughs) it's a great one. And it takes me back to high school, where my family also moved. And uh, we moved from New Zealand to England when I was 15 for six months. And it gave me the opportunity to study French, which I'd been doing in this very absent vacuum in New Zealand and this sort of imagined reality of France. And then when I got to Northeastern to do my PhD, there's a huge concentration on world history at Northeastern and on doing research in different languages. And I came in with French and English uh, and a fascination for music. And so this combination of skills and interests landed me with Josephine Baker And with the whole set of jazz musicians that traveled to France uh, and found there for themselves a sort of freedom they had not experienced in America. Well, this became their story. But I love the language. I find the country endlessly interesting in its successes and its failures. And I mean, come on, red wine and cheese. Like what's, you know, it's such a stereotype, (laughs) but I love it. I I share a lot of that love uh, that, that you have. And you
1: know, Rachel, the book has these elements, the overture. It's just very clear that you are a musician. Do you want to tell us a little bit about a little bit more about that relationship to music?
2: I think as an historian, it's a skill but also an understanding and a love and a passion that I bring Into my work. And so I would say there are two components in that overture, which I wish I could rename, it's so pretentious, but okay. No, Um, it's great. (laughs) <laughs> but it really is an opening into things in the way that an overture is in a in a symphony where you get a little preview and a glimpse of everything that is to come. so in that overture, I talk about having moved from place to place and having had the challenge to find communities in different places and having also had the experience of seeing my own understanding of whatever my own culture is, being exposed to the harsh reality of difference and contrast and different assumed norms. And so I think experientially that gave me in some ways uh, an affinity for the stories of people who travelled and faced challenges when they tried to settle in new places. Um, Obviously, I have a lot of advantages. But also, from the musical point of view, I do. Like when I get to a new place, I join a choir and I hear people's stories and we go out after singing together. And it's a very physical act. It's also a very cerebral act. I have to say, I sing in church choirs. I'm not a jazz musician. So it's a very collective act too. We breathe together. We try and shape a piece of music together that will reach people, that will create a sound world and that will create a moment in time where people are brought together. And I think all of these things, like these personal skills and understandings, helped me find a way into a subject that, you know, these women, many of them are women that I talk about, and these jazz musicians are vastly different experientially from me. But we do share the music, and we do share that sense of displacement and movement. And, and I think that was quite increasingly important to me as I finished the book to kind of realize how my personal location had actually informed a lot of my questions.
1: So you mentioned, Rachel, you know, how you came to, to working on music in general. This particular book project, do you want to tell us a little bit more about where it emerged from?
2: Yes, absolutely. And Josephine Baker is the the kind of she who must be named at all times. Um so and and she's the visible kind of presence of jazz music and of colonial stereotypes and of images of the African American in Paris that also becomes amazingly French. And so when I was in graduate school at Northeastern, as I said, I was trying to think about how I could approach world history, how I could approach the transnational, how I could do work that I loved, right? How can I talk and think about music, which is a skill set and a passion I have? How I can return actually to some of the work I did in the, in undergraduate on blues queens and and their articulations of gender and race in their own lives and songs. And I just kept coming back to Josephine Baker, who had this incredible trajectory from America to France, who found there or said she did a certain type of acceptance And I was able to work with her archives and her personal sources. But then I realized, of course, everybody talks about Josephine Baker, so surely I can do something that goes beyond that. And indeed, thinking about whether Baker's experiences were representative or whether they were unique led me to the whole wave of African-American jazz musicians who moved to Paris, who lived in Paris, who in many ways shaped a French understanding and and appreciation for what, if not blackness was, what a representation of members of the African diaspora was. And even more importantly, through dance and through music, um, that was their passport and that is really interesting because music can sometimes be this liminal world, right? This, this in-between world where entertainers get access to spaces that other people don't get access to, but it's not really inclusion. Uh, And so that's a long answer to saying, when I began to really dig into the story of Josephine Baker, like not just her celebratory narrative of what France had to offer her, but the bigger pictures, the other groups and the truths they weren't always telling, that's how the book began to grow.
1: So the book is focused on interwar Paris So before we go any further, Rachel, I just want to kind of set up things for, I mean, I think a lot of us have some ideas about interwar France, interwar Paris. Is there anything you'd want to sort of highlight for us uh, in terms of understanding the vibe of interwar Paris? What what do you want to tell people or what comes to mind for you when you, you hear those two words together?
2: So there's an amazing quote, and I was sitting in the archives and reading through these microfiche, you know, you're scanning through endless um, screens (laughs) of like black and white hideousness and hoping you won't get a headache. And there is a quote written by somebody who is thinking about the place of jazz in interwar Paris. And they say, after, I'm paraphrasing here, after the trauma of war, How could we go back to the concert hall and listen to the classical serene tones of Mozart? We needed the clashing, dramatic sounds of jazz because after the war we've been through, anything else would seem trivializing. I'm paraphrasing, but I think Mm. that gets at the sense that Paris and France after the war was deeply traumatized and damaged and this is a part of a context which even before the war people were thinking about what is the next stage for art and culture what is the next stage for modernity what is happening here in Europe and then after that absolute insanity and damage of war and you see people coming back and they're mutilated. And the way that things have gone has not been the way that the patriotic poems promised and the romantic nationalist visions promised. This is the setting within which the Harlem Hellfighters, led by their charismatic leader, James Reese Europe, came in. And, you know, he writes we played in the Jardin des Tuileries and a shout went up from the multitudes that must have been heard in Berlin. And I think these quotes sort of encapsulate the the feeling of Paris in the immediate aftermath of the war where there was a lot of trauma. There was also a lot of sort of frenetic questioning of what would be next and a lot of desire to return to, to normalcy but to return to a normalcy within which you could find new sets of answers to the questions that romantic nationalism had clearly failed to provide. And, mm-hmm. and that sets the stage for the jazz musicians that I study, but also for the black French colonial subjects that I study to come in and say, well, what the heck was the war for? like, what did we fight for? Mm-hmm. And for the French people also to begin to think about what their country was in the aftermath of this horrific war. And and this is more broadly felt throughout Europe, actually.
1: So at some level, I mean, there's a chapter that's specifically focused on reactions to this, but at some level, you know, the book is engaged in different ways with this, the term is tumulte noir. So again, even though Many of the people who listen to this podcast have French as a language. Can you tell us not just what that means in English, but, you know, what that phrase refers to? Yeah, just like a mini genealogy of Timothinoire so that we we can situate ourselves.
2: Yes, absolutely. And you know, Tyler Stovall, whose work completely inspired mine. But also the art historian and museum curator Jody Blake deal with this in their work. Tumult noir, the craze for all things black, literally. Uh, you know, the, the tumult created by blackness. But this suggested more or meant more a turn to the art and culture of people descended from, the, from Africa, the African diaspora. Uh, and this could sometimes be a really um, a kind of appropriating move, and other scholars have dealt with that. As I said, the great enthusiasm Throughout Europe, for not just jazz music, but also for what was what became known as primitivism in art, inspired by African mask art and and referenced a great deal by the avant-garde artists of the time, Uh, the sense that this new, but also modern, but also primitive art had some answers and some excitement that Europe was ready for at this stage and a resulting proliferation of images and representations of people of African descent, Afro-diasporic people, and the art that was inspired by them, but sometimes actually really exoticized and misrepresented um, mm-hmm. the African diaspora.
1: Reading the introduction to the book, Rachel, the things that sort of strike me as is- Um, different ways that you're coming at and setting up the way that the book explores Blackness and the history of Blackness in this period in, in Paris and in France there are these sort of categories that I I wrote down that, you know, come from you. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Black presence, Black cosmopolitanism, and then this idea of, you know, Black community, solidarity, difference. I guess I wanted to ask you a set of questions just so we have a sense of the parameters of the book and who's involved, like who are the actors and the subjects of the book, about the presence, Black presence of Black people in France during the 1920s and 30s, Um, you know, how large a community we're talking about. I mean, I don't need you to hurl a bunch of stats at me, but just some kind of sense of the kind of size of the community that we're talking about and whether there are any major shifts that we should know about through the 20s, like over the course of the 20s and 30s. And then this idea of cosmopolitanism, you've already spoken about jazz and the presence of african-americans but also the presence of different black people from the colonies and you know of course the book is working out that relationship between these different black communities and their different musical traditions and cultures like everyone's not the same obviously and how those communities connect antillians africans um, and americans and then yeah I guess, flowing from that cosmopolitanism or connected to it is the fact that there's community building that's happening, but there's also all of these differences. So yeah, anything you can tell us that will fill in a bit the picture of, and the complicated picture of who's in interwar Paris in terms of a Black community or Black communities?
2: So who is there? After the war, uh, you know, the Harlem Hellfighters uh, that I mentioned earlier, Led by James Reese Europe and Noble Sissel, uh, this jazz band attached to the American army that enter Paris and begin to spark a huge enthusiasm for jazz. And this actually provides um, a platform or an entry point for numerous other. Black American musicians, performers, and performer-adjacent people like Langston Hughes, who ends up like washing dishes because he's not a good enough musician, but he wants to come to Paris anyway. (laughs) So we have a group, a small group, but a highly visible group of Black Americans in Paris, Paris Noir, as Tyler Stovall says. And then we have an Also small, hard to trace numerically, uh, black French citizens from the Caribbean who have, some of them have fought in the war. A lot of them are civil servants and have been considered as Evolue, this category of black colonial subjects who do identify as descended from an African diaspora, but have also often been, educated in France, and consider themselves uh, elite, educated, and middle class. And these are often Black French Caribbeans, and some of them, like Leopold Sincor, also come from Senegal. There is also a huge group, an increasingly large group of North Africans, and I genuinely just do not consider them in the book, because I engaged with people who self-identified as black. Um, And that is because I was really interested in this category of Afro-diasporic music, of black music. Mm. Um, So we have black Americans, we have black French Caribbeans, we have some black French Africans, and many of those identify as uh, middle class. And then we have a whole group of working class, former tirailleurs, uh, fighters for the French, who have ended up settled in France, identify as black come from a french colonial subject position and are increasingly disaffected with the Mm. french empire and all of them are watching the impact of these black americans not just on paris and france but on the representation of black people more broadly and here is where the reaction becomes really interesting and there's this kind of oscillation, this flux and flow between solidarity, like we're all Black people who have suffered under the the colonial reign and have been subject to, in one way or another, the impact of enslavement and the, the global trade in enslaved humans that affected Africa. There's that solidarity, But there are also all of these differences between the middle class French Caribbeans, between the black French working class tirailleurs who who feel deeply betrayed by France and have, in fact, been differently treated during the war, and between the black Americans, many of whom are living it up. Large, but they come together. I mean, they are. I mean, really, like you can listen to their audio interviews uh, in the um, manuscripts and rare books archive at Emory University. And they're like, we had a time of it. We had champagne every night. We were, you know, jamming until two in the morning at brick tops. And some black French colonial subjects were part of that, but some definitely didn't want to be. And some Mm. were excluded from that and some felt actually harmed by that representation of, of blackness.
1: In terms of the music that's coming together in Paris in this period, Rachel, I mean, jazz is certainly this huge presence and we're going to talk about some of the other, you know, musical and dance styles. Would you, I mean, is there anything that rivals jazz in this period or anything that's kind of mixing with jazz or is it, yeah, I'm just trying to understand The way that uh, the book, uh, because you're dealing with this
2: diverse community, the way that the music is diverse or not, I guess. Thank you. Of course, there's so much music in Europe and in particular in Paris at this time. And it is not just the Charleston, which is the, like, calling card of jazz. You know, the Josephine Baker's Charleston, uh, which, which actually the Nardal sisters, uh, a group of highly educated French Caribbean sisters, describe as an obscene shimmy. <laughs> but you also have uh, the tango coming in from latin america you have a whole set of russian exiles so they're bringing like russian music into paris at the time and you also have a, a form that i spent quite a lot of time on in the book the beguine, which is a french caribbean form and honestly like when you first listen to it if if you're not a musician you might think oh that sounds vaguely jazzy but if you're caribbean Or if you're really into music, you can hear the difference instantly. And the people that I was reading who were commenting on music all the time, who were going to musical concerts and also dance halls, would comment a lot on, first of all, the difference between jazz and the French Caribbean begin, But also they did mention the cross-fertilization. And I think this weaves through the themes of cosmopolitanism that I talk about, because so often people are thinking about the intellectual definitions of unity, solidarity, and cosmopolitanism. But if you look at the jams late at night in the nightclubs in Montmartre, you do actually see some French-Caribbean musicians playing the Beguine and some African-American musicians playing jazz and some uh, Latin-American musicians playing the tango. And they do all jam together and kind of achieve... Mm -hmm. Uh, working class musical communication in that way. And then at other times, you see some of the commentary really take pains to distinguish between the different musics. And there's this amazing comment from Andre Nardal who says, The Begin is not to be understood as the Charleston, which is a vulgar frenetic movement, but as a graceful, languorous approach of the two sexes toward each other with the rhythmic and virtuosic uh, swirling of the clarinet and the cheeky cha-cha and uh, of the the uh, shaker and so you see this real attention on the part of people to how music expresses identity and how that actually helps them differentiate between each other but also come together at certain times
1: i'm I'm not a musician, Rachel I'm a a great fan of music and a great uh, consumer of
2: music but I'm not
1: I'm not a musician, so this is probably a really dull question to ask you but I think one of the things that really strikes me about your book is that, you know, it opens up all of these things that music history can, to look at the history of music is to look at all sorts of different things, potentially, you know, you're looking at the context in which music is played, consumed, produced, like all of these things, but also that a lot of the time the music that we're talking about is music that's for, you know, socializing, for dancing. What would you say like if you had to do a ratio like how much is this book about music and how much is it about dance? I mean, that's a really stupid way to put it, but like that that you're doing all kinds of things while you're doing a history of music here. And I guess I just wonder about the challenge of that, especially because you are somebody who's familiar with the technical side of things. So I just wondered where you kind of Put yourself and and whether there were any challenges as you were working on this book to decide like what should I delve into and what should I, you know, move to away from.
2: Actually, um, my incredible supervisor Laura Freida once said to me, "It's all very well to write about music, but you have to write about it in a way that is historically grounded, and you have to do that for the job market." Good advice, and and you also have to do that for an audience of historians. I got the same advice as slightly less kindly worded when somebody once said to me when I presented as a PhD student, like, oh, your work will make a great coffee table book someday. (laughs) It's like, okay, good. Um, Yes, true. But to answer your question, uh, which is, to what extent do I talk about dance? To what extent do I talk about music? And as an historian, how do I deal methodologically with those one of the things I find extremely important is to be able to convey not just to my fellow historians, but also to students why music matters, why mm. music matters in the world and how we can deal with it as a source. So as with any historical source, we have to think about the genre and the form. And I will admit that actually at an early French historical studies conference, uh, Daniel Sherman was like, okay, this is great, but what about dance? And I was not thinking about dance <laughs> at that time. One of the things that actually emerged to me when I started taking music seriously as a source of historical information. And when I looked at the way that the women whose writings I read were talking about it was just how meaningful it was to them and on a political and expressive and identifying level as well. And that's why I use the word cultural politics in the title of the book. Um, and I can give you an example from chapter four, where I really tried to think not just about what the music sounded like. like Why Mm. does it matter that the Beguine has clarinets in it, whereas jazz has saxophones? It matters to the people who are listening to it in Paris, because it seems to express to them something very special about their community, and they talk about it like that. So I think when you get into the sound world, you don't have to be an expert
1: Mm. to
2: hear what the meaning of the music is to the people who were inhabiting it and who were practicing it and who were relating to it. And, you know, one of the politicians that I talk about, um, Monerville, Gaston Monerville, talks about the Begin, this French-Caribbean musical form, as the treasured soul of the Antilles and deeply French, not jazz. So when you take the sound seriously and when you take the way that people are practicing music seriously and you look at the sound world, the differences between the sound world, how people are dancing to this on the dance hall, listening to it, recording it, listening to recordings of it and reviewing recordings of it, which they really care about, then you start seeing just what a greater meaning it has for people. And that's why I think about cultural politics. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And in chapter four, you know, I take you through not just what the music sounded like, but yes, and, and that chapter is about like why the Beguine mattered, right? Why people spend so much time talking about this music and dance form called the Beguine how it sounded different from jazz, how they reviewed it differently from jazz, how they performed it differently in the big communal dance halls and tried to create their own dance spaces. And I'm saying their own, and I'm talking specifically about French colonial subjects here who got fed up with white tourists coming to their dance spaces and created new dance spaces and talked about feeling at home in their sounds or at home Hmm. in their dances. And they did embody that and they did move together. And they write about how at a certain point in the music, you stamp it out with your feet. So when you take the whole genre seriously, you get at why it was culturally important, but also why it was politically important. Mm -hmm. It wasn't American. It was Francophone. And it did make claims on having this Francophone Black cultural form that has larger implications for the political understanding of who is French and who belongs in the French Republic.
1: I want to come back to this issue of politics for sure. Uh, and and this, this is one way of doing that because, you know, it's that two historians were talking and one of the historians asked the other historian, what about your sources? <laughs> So let's talk about that a little bit more because we know that music is a big piece of this, right? And I'm sure there are lots of visual sources that that came into play as well in this project. But do you want to tell us a little bit about how you're accessing this cultural politics? Like, I think there are some obvious sources that come to mind, but I also know that throughout the book, you're working with all kinds of voices, different types of written and other types of sources. And and the book is a real... um, collection of these things. And I just, I think it's also, it's always interesting for people to understand, you know, what your, your research path and how you kind of pulled this together through all of those different types of media. So yeah, anything you want to tell us about that?
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Thank you. I'm so glad you noticed like how many different types of sources I use. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, because, and, 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 you know, one of the, Greatest delights of my professional career, which has been uh, long and varied and and involved some temporary contracts and things like that. Uh, One of the delights was working at um, Harvard's History and Literature Program, where the detailed attention to the form and genre of a source actually really helped me. Um, but I've always had an eclectic approach to sources. So, yeah, in the book, I work with police surveillance records. I can thank Laura Freider for that. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> true historic sources. And they were fantastic because what they do is, is they show that the police were really interested in what happened culturally. And they were paying attention to everything. And they also show that at some of these sort of frivolous dance hall events – Uh, some of the participants made political speeches. So what we might see as like in the classic Marxist analysis as superstructure, like entertainment for the masses actually became a vehicle for not just community building, but also for the delivery of political messages and Mm -hmm. fundraising, by the way, Mm -hmm. and money matters. I thought it was really important to look not just at the records, like, why do people record certain things but also how the cover art was presented and and what the the notes were and it's really fascinating that as the onset of world war ii begins and as the rise in fascism and racism even within france takes off Um, actually fewer Black music recordings are recorded. So I found that also interesting, the record Mm. publication, the reviews, how do people relate to this music? What does it mean to them and how is that transmitted in writing? Um, And yes, the art, because how do you see through posters and through magazines how pervasive an image is in society? And of course that requires thinking about how magazines are circulating, how newspapers are circulating, how print culture is circulating. And one of my favorite sources, uh, even though like I began with Black American musicians and very much ended up with Black French colonial subjects and their impressions, one of my favorite sources was the letters that Black American musicians and columnists for the Chicago Defender would write home as though they were writing to their community, but they would publish them in the black American newspapers and say things like, this is the life, you know, I don't experience uh, the racism here. I mean, they were talking in the the language of the time. So I did. I tried to look across a huge range of sources uh, in order partly to show the linkage between culture and politics and if you can move from a police surveillance record to a, a DECA label or Pathé label record record and think mm-hmm. about like, what those two things are doing in juxtaposition and then calibrate that with the experiences of the people that you're studying then I think you begin to build a multiply voiced picture
1: One of the things that's so fascinating to me about the book, uh, Rachel, is how you access, you know, what black French people, what other black people were present in Paris um, at the time are saying about these movements or saying about jazz or saying about the beginning that you're trying to access all of that. So in that first chapter, you know, you're looking at what the Nardal sisters have to say. And and that, you know, produces some interesting tensions between, you know, how people think about jazz, how people think about race, how people think about, you know, um, cultural styles, music, dance that are coming from uh, colonial contexts of empire and, you know, these American forms that you've mentioned already. And that that really leads you to being able to explore politics in an interesting way. So, yeah, could you talk a little bit about that black perspective—that's that you're trying to get at throughout the book.
2: Yeah, and and clearly I'm a white New Zealander, Pakeha, uh, writing this <laughs> history of like Frenchness and blackness, uh, and and there is a certain interesting uh, kind of self-location in that. Uh, but I mean, I build on the shoulders of giants here, mm-hmm. and and I have to be really honest about that. Tyler Stovall's work, but also I, I discussed Josephine Baker and Bricktop. They wrote their own memoirs. I discussed the Nadal sisters. They had this incredible published oeuvre in the 1920s and 30s where they were super self-reflective, where they were contributing to the Paris uh, kind of response and incarnation uh, of the Black Renaissance that we frequently think of in terms of the Harlem Renaissance but you know Tyler Stovall also did this Jennifer Boatan also tried to mm-hmm. access these voices I, I mean Trisha Sharply Whiting Trika Sharpley Whiting and Brent Hayes Edwards and I know I'm forgetting names so It was really a wonderful thing to me as I was reading for my comprehensive exams and then thinking about moving from Josephine Baker to the reaction to her to be able to see some of the work of these other scholars. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And for that reason, but for the reason also that my personal location is, you know, not black and French. I think I really did try and honor the voices in the sources who made my work easy for me. Like they were doing this work in the 1920s and 30s. They were commenting on the French Republican promise and its failures. They Mm. were saying we want to be middle class and French and do classical music and jazz and the begin, but each of those things mean different things to us. So thank you. And I do try and not always make a huge theoretical deal about it, but try and center the voices of Black women in the text Mm -hmm. so as to honor their experiences and to actually reflect the brilliance uh, with which they approached uh, the issues of race and politics and culture in their time.
1: I feel uh, both an imperative to ask this next question and a little worried that I mean, I won't mind if it ends up that we're talking for several <laughs> hours again, but it probably won't work for the podcast to ask about the role of women in this, the relationship between women and men and gender and music. And I mean, I, should I even bring up sex and sexuality? But like that's really um, it's a question that's always there when I'm reading about these topics and themes. But in your book, I feel like it's particularly interesting because you do have these voices of Black women um, responding to this musical and dance culture, to a broader context of colonialism, to uh, this Black cosmopolitanism, you know, articulating a particular type of program of Black internationalism. And yeah, that women play a tremendous role in this book, both as like the objects of the colonial gaze and you know a, a racialized gaze, but also as you know commentators and and interveners in this in this discourse. So yeah, anything you want to say in particular about the kind of gendered dynamics of of what's going on in this book and the in the project?
2: Thank you. Yep. Um, so I think it's summarized actually in the characters of the women that I focus on. Mm. Um, And I'm going to give you one from a black American woman and and one from a black French woman. And Bricktop, who is this phenomenal nightclub owner, she's a redhead, she comes from um, uh, Alabama goddamn America or something, the quote's in the book. But she (laughs) says, sure, I went out with lots of my white elite clients, and I'm paraphrasing, so you have to read the book for the exact quote, but in her memoirs. I could have been any of their lovers, but I would only ever be a backstreet mistress to them. And I wasn't interested in that. Now, Bricktop entertained the Prince of Wales, she entertained County Cullen, uh F. Scott Fitzgerald, like Cole Porter wrote, well, reportedly wrote Miss Otis Regrets, which is this incredibly haunting song. For her and her nightclub was this glittering space of stars, and yet she said, as a black American woman, all I would ever have been was a backstreet mistress to uh, the, the the men who inhabited my salon, right? Or my my nightclub. Josephine Baker also said, uh, I wore couture sometimes to ward off the gazes of men who looked at me like I was a circus animal. Hmm. And then to flip the and and then the Nardal sisters were so rude about Josephine Baker, and they came from a much more middle class and bourgeois respectable background where they wanted black art and culture to be respected, but they also didn't want, as women, to be hypersexualized or exoticized. And this is where you get Jane Nadal's. Uh, now famous among certain French historian circles, comment that, you know, um, just, you know, Josephine Baker, she brought the primitivism of the African forest and the modernity of America together, but we must do more than that and we must create black humanist images of ourselves. And she's speaking from a particularly gendered position. And then the final one, and I know I said two, but I've done four, but is... um, a French Caribbean black male musician Mm. who had a very elite lover. Uh, And he records in his memoir that one time he went to a party and they asked him to strip naked and he felt like he was a hand on a cotton plantation. Mm. And so I think when you take all of these anecdotes, I think you can see that there is an intersection there that women and men felt profoundly conditioned by the expectations of their gender and also um, that 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 was affected by their racialization. And so in the book, I just, I try and trace that a little bit without, again, without theorizing it too much, but just to show that middle-class black women wanted it were really buying into respectability politics that Josephine Baker while she sometimes felt exploited also was able to exploit that white gaze right back at it mm-hmm. uh, and um, Jennifer Boitan also you know shows this with regard to some of the black men that she discusses in her work that and she calls it reverse exoticism mm-hmm. so i just think that the gendered story is so complicated And Mm -hmm. I try and trace some of those complexities in the book.
1: You know, at some level, Rachel, like the whole book is about politics, (laughs) like cultural politics, uh, throughout all of these different conversations, including within the Black community. I guess I wonder about the interactions between the Black community and the white figures who appear in the book. Like, how is this book a talking back to? How do you see that relationship between Blackness and whiteness in the book, I guess?
2: That is a fantastic question.
1: I feel weird asking about it because I feel like, you know, white interwar Paris, like we've got that, like we don't need that book. But there, but it's there, obviously, in this book. So, yeah.
2: Yeah. And I think, it, it, and it's really funny. So a deeply difficult personal moment was when I got the reviews for the book. And one of them, and it was very astute, said this book is both ahead of and after its time. And... Okay. <laughs> And I think that after its time was referencing precisely the white French reaction to jazz in Paris, which has been um, very admirably studied by Uh other historians. And so Jodie Blake, I mentioned, who discusses the tumult noir, but also Jeremy Lane, or there are a number of other scholars who think about how white France reacted to jazz with both love and horror. One of my responses actually to the reviews of the book, which was that the first half of my then chapter one kind of rehashed a familiar white response to jazz Mm -hmm. in Paris was simply to cut that (laughs) and to try and move much more rapidly to the black French colonial response Mm -hmm. to uh, jazz in Paris. And yet whiteness and blackness were multiply and mutually constituted so and and white people are not a monolith just as black people are not a monolith and so you had uh, a good example are Hugh Panassier who's mm. a huge fan of jazz this guy was one of the first jazz critics, right? But he exemplifies a certain proportion of the French population who saw jazz as this exotic, yes, response to World War I, this primitivist art form, and that true black jazz players were the only ones who could improvise, were the only ones who were the true jazz musicians. And he really had this almost racially essentialized understanding of jazz and Let's get it straight. Like jazz is a music that comes out of the African-American music tradition and has this black music component to it. But Hugues Panassier was convinced that only black people could really play jazz. And he almost, yeah, sort of exoticized them in his turn. Um, Versus Charles Deloney, who worked with Django Reinhardt and various others to think about what jazz could be as a more a site of exchange, encounter, and mutual development. Both of them were using jazz to reflect on French culture, uh, reflect on the whiteness of French culture, and reify it in one case or query it possibly in another case. So that use of jazz and Black diasporic culture as a mirror is definitely there, and you see it, also in the knee-jerk reaction to jazz from not just some white French classical music critics, but actually Uh from the cabaret singers who are like, oh, they're taking our turf. Like, this Uh is terrible. This is an invasion and they are not us and their music is not French cabaret popular entertainment. We have to reassert like the beauty of French culture through our white French cabaret practice. So you know sorry. I didn't, and, mean, to, and I'm I didn't sorry. mean to laugh. So it's true, it's true. Look up Harry Kishant.
1: Um, I may or may not edit that laugh out. I don't know. I'll have to think about it.
2: You can decide. But I don't have a very good answer on the whiteness of France because I think so many other scholars have so adequately and brilliantly documented it and mm-hmm. you know read Mam Fatou Young on this. But the same ideas about what is truly French art and what is not also weave through the reactions to jazz and to black French Caribbean music. And in fact, some of the radicalism of what my some of my very middle-class bourgeois black French Caribbean women were doing was to say, actually, forget whiteness, we too are France, and mm-hmm. France can contain this Afro-Diasporic tradition as well.
1: So if politics is everywhere in the book, there's also in different places, a kind of emphasis on a politics more specifically defined, right, in terms of colonial resistance in particular. And I I mean, I think it's there all the time in some ways, but in particular of the ch- the chapter, the third chapter about the reactions and responses to the Colonial Exposition of 1931 and how how this universe of music and race, like how the music itself can be a form of political resistance, the music and dance, but also how this commentary and culture around the music becomes a part of colonial resistance in this period.
2: Yeah, and in Chapter 3, I think about the Colonial Exposition as both revealing the long durée, groundwork of French thinking about race and I think about how that is manifested in music so very you know explicitly you have the Malgash the, the Madagascans who are shown as having this like almost civilized music right and the the Antillians, the French Caribbeans who are shown as actually quite close and this is all from the exposition materials um whereas the africans are depicted as to 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 invoke the scientific darwinism that really is very apparent in the publication materials for the colonial exposition um the the senegalese uh dancers are depicted as in grass skirts and kind of drums and not having a lot of musical sophistication, um, whereas the Madagascans approach more nearly to musical sophistication and the French Caribbeans make you feel happy and at home. So that uh, kind of racial hierarchy is evident in the performance at the colonial exposition itself. And then it is tackled by uh, members of the League Against Imperialism, but also by members of the Ligue de la Défense de la the League for the Defense of the Black Race. And they try and set up a counter-exposition with concerts that will show like a different side of, of uh, Afro-Diasporic music, but they also call out... The racial hierarchy and the fictions, they call them, of the colonial exposition. And they rip on some of the depictions and they also say, look, the performers aren't allowed to leave. So this is like really a a state controlled set of performances. Um, And then they say, and the uh, Caledonians who are portrayed as cannibals, goodness, if you want to see real savagery, go and watch white people trying to dance the Charleston in the nightclubs of (laughs) Montmartre. So both in terms of performance, in terms of an exposition, an exhibition that the anti-colonial activists, both white and black, Uh, try and set up to counter the colonial exposition. And also in their critique, um, many of the people that I write about in the book try and challenge and, yes, resist the narrative that comes out of a long set of colonial hierarchies, racialized hierarchies, that is presented by the colonial exposition. At the same time, some of them make money from performing and are happy to be in Paris and part of that so uh, and and the French Caribbean performers have much more freedom of movement than uh, some of the Senegalese and Madagascan performers so we again we see these complexities the solidarity and difference um, and both agency but also constraint within the limits of the french colonial hierarchies all on display through music
1: so uh, you know rachel since the book came out well I'm just trying to think of the timing of all of this.
2: When did the book come out? In this March, 2021. Right, right, <laughs> horrible right. time for a book to come out, oh, actually. A horrible it, time. I mean,
1: I, I know that it must be. I mean, I know there's you know online celebrations and launches and things like that, but it's not the same. And so I'm really happy, especially during this period. I've been so happy to speak with people who had books come out since the spring of 2020. But I'm also real interested in the timing of the book you know, while it might've been unfortunate in some ways, I do think there's something about this, book. I know you didn't plan it this way, but like this book came out at a moment of a a very particular type of thinking through questions of blackness, racism, racial injustice, not just in the United States, although the murder of George Floyd is certainly, you know, certainly a kind of tipping point and a, Kind of catalyst for some of the coming to terms, rethinking of the last couple of years, and then there's the pantheonization of Josephine Baker, like all these things that some more maybe directly than others connect to the themes and, and questions that you explore here. So this is an impossible question, but you know anything that you you want to say about what you hope people who read this book about the interwar years might my take from it in terms of thinking through the question of, of music race and cultural politics in contemporary
2: France. How have you thought about that, I guess,
1: since the book came out?
2: So this book has had a long trajectory. And interestingly enough, when I applied for a fellowship in 2005, uh, I wrote about the urgency and relevancy of the book because of uprisings in the banlieue over the unjust death of two young men while being chased by the police. Mm. And in 2021, in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, there were protests throughout Europe, including in the Netherlands, which I attended. Uh, But, of course, the French ones focused on Adama Traore. And I write at the end of the acknowledgments in the book The book captures human struggles for dignity and inclusion in Paris a century ago in the face of racism and inequality. The book is done, but the fight continues. Mm. I have been so inspired, actually, by students who have challenged me to think through how hip-hop today in France works out some of the tensions that were evident in jazz, the begin, in the lives of the people that I studied in the book. Uh, because we again have a discussion over who belongs, over what sounds reflect Frenchness, reflect French culture, and how that is intimately and intricately interwoven with ideas about the normative French Republican self. And, like, it just hasn't gone away. Mm. So when I think about Josephine Baker's pantheonization, and I wrote about this in the Washington Post, mm-hmm. um, but Annette Joseph-Gabrielle and Manfetou wrote about it better. <laughs> um, but when I think about Josephine Baker's pantheonization, I think she is both a groundbreaking, pioneering inclusion in the pantheon And also the obvious inclusion, despite not being a philosopher, although you could argue that dance is philosophy, she said multiple times, France is the land of racial inclusion, freedom, and liberty. France can teach America how to include its black peoples. And she also Uh, was amazing, right? She fought for the French resistance. Mm -hmm. But Baker, at the same time, earlier in her life, performed colonialist fantasy stereotypes. And so I think for me, you know, the pantheonization of Baker and the conversations around it just show how difficult the French still find it to come to terms with a France that is diverse, that is plural, that is black and white, and that has space for everybody and can be truly Republican. Um, and, And so I think, you know, the book actually does tap into something that is just not going to go away. So Rachel,
1: I mean, I could really talk to you for hours more, but I won't. I will ask you one last question, which is, and this is a low pressure question. I feel like I, this pandemic has made me, you know, I don't want it to ask people like, so what, what's the next book, you know, because whatever you're doing,
2: whatever you're working on, whatever you're focused on, anything you want to share about next projects or anything? Actually, yes. Good. I'm Really excited because I just received funding for a big project that I am helping to coordinate. Um, we received funding for a huge project called Representing Europe uh, Diversity, Belonging, and Inclusion in Popular Culture in Europe. And so, thinking actually, on a broader scale about some of the issues that I think about in the book, but working with hip-hop houses in the Netherlands, working with Feyenoord, a big sports uh, um, kind of institute here, and thinking about how our representations of Dutch identity, but also European identity, French identity, have been shaped in the past by some really normative uh, assumptions about Mm. whiteness and how we can expand those and also think about Dutch identity, French identity, European identity, Atlantic identities as being braided and interwoven and not just one thing. Um, And so I've been thinking a lot about whether a concept of braided identities might Mm -hmm. work for for Mm -hmm. populations who have diverse backgrounds but still feel part of the country And community in which they live. Anyway, so we've got funding. Congratulations. Thank you. It was a huge team effort. And we're going to be working for five years on that project together as um, universities, institutes, local community organizations, arts organizations. And my personal bit of it is going to be thinking through like, how the French case intersects with broader European cases and whether this interesting idea I have about braided identities, like in a hair braid, uh, we can contain all these different bits and they're sort of maybe distinct, but maybe interlinked, whether that is workable or not. Mm. So both conceptual and practical challenges for me. That
1: sounds so exciting and I can't wait to hear more about it. Rachel, I am so grateful to you for speaking with me about this wonderful book, At Home and Our Sounds, for writing it, and yeah, for joining me for this conversation.
2: Thank you so much. You're amazing.
1: No you.